We begin with that breaking news in connection with Jeffrey Epstein. His ex-girlfriend, Ghislaine Maxwell, is now facing charges. Maxwell is accused of helping the late financier procure underage sex partners. This morning, the longtime confidant of Jeffrey Epstein, 58-year-old British socialite Ghislaine Maxwell, is now in custody. A breaking news we have just learned that the man accused of killing the son of federal judge in New Jersey and shooting her husband has been found dead. Police say the shooter showed up at the North Brunswick home of the judge dressed as a FedEx driver. Ms. Lane Maxwell is in prison. Do you feel that she's going to turn in powerful men? How do you see that working out? I don't know. I haven't really been following it too much. I just wish her well, frankly. This Epstein story is bananas. It's filled with sex, death, money and conspiracy theories. It's the ultimate rabbit hole. And the truth is, if you made this up in some Hollywood writer's room, they'd be like, no way, man. Billionaire pedophile, private island, former president on their jet 25 times. Come on, man, no way. But rather than focus on the seemingly endless flow of villains, I thought I'd point out something hiding in plain sight in this episode. The connections in this sordid tale to American institutions. Hey everybody, I'm Freddie J and you are listening to the Live, Learn, Repeat podcast, a slightly modified show where we are not afraid to dig deep, speak like a heretic, and question absolutely everything. So a few days ago, America pulled out of the World Health Organization, the WHO. Comforting in a time of a pandemic, where our civic leaders, our for-profit healthcare system, and the federal government has absolutely butchered the response. Here in California, there's a second wave They're shutting us down again. Still protests all over the country, some of them violent. The economy is about to be in shambles. And of course, people are dying. On the back end of all the social unrest, the cancel culture, the fear, the seeming inability to really take an honest look at what's happening here it got me thinking not about good guys and bad guys and it's hard because we love heroes and villains but about institutions the things that are supposed to make society work politics and government disaster Healthcare and the corporate entities tasked with managing our nation's medical needs. A mess. Policing. Okay, racism, fine, but I would argue the drug war and traffic stops, which are nothing more than a shitty way to fleece people of color and do them almost nothing to make the world a better place or safer. It's disintegrating right in front of us. And it's just one part of our criminal justice system. How about prisons or the courts 
or the fact that the feds and the city authorities are fighting right now in America's borders. Why are all these systems breaking down? Is it because they just straight up suck and they're being exposed? Or is it something more than that? Have these systems been hijacked or corrupted or have they just always been like this and I've been unable to see it? Could the advent of social media, the ubiquity of video cameras and the incessant need for moral clarity that seems to have captivated the nation have something to do with it or everything to do with it? I don't know. But the problem is we need these systems not to suck in order to manage our society. I'd like to be an anarchist, but I've seen Black Hawk Down. Have you been to Somalia recently? No government, no, 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 no central authority. Show me an example where it's worked. If we defund the police or burn up the Constitution or decide it's time to retire our democratic republic, there is absolutely no guarantee that whatever replaces it won't look a thousand times worse and be an authoritarian hell. Whether it's Maoist China the brand of democracy ushered in after the Soviet Union fell. You think Donald Trump is dangerous? Try spouting off in Putin's Russia. Or, or, or better yet, see what happens when you call the dear leader a Nazi in North Korea, which I should point out is officially named the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Mm-hmm. How much do you think they care about democracy or the people in North Korea when you call their leader a fascist. Good luck. Let me know how that goes. So here I am wondering how the hell all these institutions that I once believed in, how they fell apart. Things I believe that were here to protect, serve, and elevate ordinary Americans? I mean, flailing might be too kind a word. Oh, that damn sound snapped me right out of my thoughts. Pavlov's dog had a look at it. And for once, I was really glad I did. Because staring at me on my little Supercomputer was a headline. Ghislaine, is that you? Inside Ghislaine Maxwell's Life on the Lamb. Now I know what you're thinking. What on earth could America's most salacious sexual predator story possibly tell us about our institutions? I would say a lot. Now magazine journalism like broadcast journalism and newspapers, has taken a huge hit recently. 
But the headline staring at me was from, of all things, Vanity Fair, by a journalist who I'd never heard of, by the name of Mark Seal. And while I didn't run out and subscribe the second I read this thing, I probably should have, because it was an excellent piece of journalism. Quality investigation, quality writing, and it really put a lot of things in context, for me at least. And so I thought today I would read a good bit of this article with a little bit of commentary from yours truly. And so I'll start at the top. Ghislaine, is that you? The woman making her way into the first-class cabin of a commercial flight from Miami to New York City was almost unrecognizable. Her attire, once stylish and attention-grabbing, now seemed designed to deflect notice. Her face, usually painted to perfection, was devoid of makeup. There was a hint of gray in her signature black bob, and her days of starvation diets and charity circuit appearance seemed far behind her. Wearing no traces of her glamorous New York life, much of it once provided by Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell could have been anybody or nobody. It was the spring of 2018 and it had been a decade since Maxwell's former best friend and lover had served 13 months in a Palm Beach jail with time free on work release after pleading guilty to two charges, including soliciting a minor for prostitution. Maxwell who sold her Manhattan home, a five-story, 7,000-square-foot townhouse on East 65th Street, was essentially homeless. No fixed address, someone claiming first-hand knowledge of her situation would later say. She might have spent the flight in anonymity had she not been spotted by a friend from New York who was sitting just behind her in the second row. I was so shocked by her look, the friend recalls. I didn't even recognize her. Okay, so good start. The time frame here is about a decade after Epstein's first conviction, but prior to his second arrest. And Ghislaine has sort of vanished into the ether. I want to stop here just to pump this article again because I'm not going to read it top to bottom. You should really do that yourself. It is great work. Mark Seal and Vanity Fair. Let's get back to the article. For a moment, as the two friends chatted, the old Maxwell burst through. The Oxford-educated, knows-everybody-and-everything Maxwell. The woman who wanted to save the oceans, but couldn't seem to save herself from the men in her life. Where are you living, Ghislaine? the friend asked. I lost touch with you. Maxwell suddenly went blank. Oh, oh, she replied. A little bit everywhere. But where? her friend pressed. Maxwell wouldn't answer. Looking back, the friend says now, I personally think she knew that the shit was really about to go down. It went down quickly. Within a year, Epstein was exposed as one of history's most notorious sexual predators, arrested on July 6, 2019, and found dead in a Manhattan jail cell five weeks later. After Epstein's death, Maxwell disappeared from view entirely, leaving the courts, the media, his victims, and a transfixed and horrified public focused on a single question. Where in the world is Ghislaine Maxwell? Everyone, it seemed, had a theory, each wilder than the last. She was said to be hiding deep beneath the sea in a submarine which she was licensed to pilot, or she was lying low in Israel under the protection of the Mossad, the powerful intelligence agency with whom her late father supposedly tangled, 
or she was in the FBI witness protection program, or ensconced in a luxury villa in the south of France, or sunning herself naked on the coast of Spain, or holed up in a high-security doomsday bunker belonging to rich and powerful friends whose lives just might implode should Maxwell ever reveal what she knows, all the dirty secrets of the dirty world that she and Epstein shared. One of the victim's lawyers had this to say, and this is further in the article. Maxwell is not going to be able to hide, David Boyes, the powerful super lawyer who represents several victims, suing her, declared confidently a few days after Epstein's death in August of 2019. There's no place in the civilized world where she can go and not be found. And unlike Epstein, she does not have the massive resources that would be required to carve out a new life in some obscure place where she cannot be extradited from. But it's a big planet for citizens of three nations, the United States, Great Britain, and France, who speaks four languages fluently and has a world of connections. Almost a year after Boy's statement, Maxwell remained at large, beyond the reach of attorneys, tabloid reporters, and 10,000-pound reward from The Sun in London. It's a little bit like Elvis. You get lots of reports, but they're hard to verify, Boy said in May. She could be anywhere, said one person familiar with the lengths people went to track her down. Russia, China, Singapore, the Middle East, England. She's in some friend's castle in the middle of nowhere, or in a tent somewhere deep in the desert. Wherever she is, she's on the down low. Maxwell's year on the run came to an abrupt end in the early hours of July 2nd, when the FBI and New York Police Department arrested her in the small New England town of Bramford, New Hampshire. Prosecutors from the Southern District of New York charged with four counts in connection with the sexual abuse of minors, two counts of perjury for lying under oath between 94 and 97, the years of her intimate relationship with Epstein. The indictment charged she assisted, facilitated, and contributed to Jeffrey Epstein's abuse of minor girls. One of the three unnamed victims was as young as 14 years old when they were groomed and abused by Maxwell and Epstein both of whom knew that certain victims were, in fact, under the age of 18. The indictment paints Maxwell as Epstein's partner in crime, adept at the art of grooming victims for him. Her methods, prosecutors said, involved befriending some of Epstein's minor victims prior to their abuse, including by asking the victims about their lives, their schools, and their families. Maxwell and Epstein would spend time building friendships with the minor victims by, for example, taking minor victims to the movies or shopping. Maxwell delivered them into the trap, Manhattan U.S. Attorney Strauss said at a press conference the day of Maxwell's arrest. She pretended to be a woman they could trust, all the while she was setting them up to be sexually abused by Epstein and, in some cases, by Maxwell herself. Once the trap was laid and rapport established, Maxwell would try and normalize sexual abuse for a minor victim by, among other things, discussing sexual topics, undressing in front of the victim, being present when a minor victim was undressed, and or being present for sex acts involving the minor victim and Epstein, all of which, quote, helped put the victims at ease because an adult woman was present, according to the indictment. Maxwell knew full well what Epstein planned to do, the indictment continued, knowing that he had a sexual preference for underage girls and she sometimes, quote, was present for and participated in the sexual abuse of minor victims. Some of the acts of abuse, prosecutors say, took place at Maxwell's London residence. 
when Maxwell was finally brought in for a deposition under oath in 2016 in the defamation case against her by Virginia Roberts Jaffre, she, quote, repeatedly lied when questioned about her conduct. She did so, said Strauss, quote, because the truth, as alleged, was almost unspeakable. <sighs> So I said at the top of this episode that I was going to try not to focus on evil villains and the people specifically in this episode and try and forge some connections to the institutions. And I'm going to start laying the groundwork for that here. Now, it's not some far out fringe conspiracy theory to say, we live in the most powerful surveillance state that the world has ever known. I mean, think of how hard it would be to completely wipe out your digital footprint, emails, cell phones, ISPs. It's not just government being able to do it. It's quite frankly, private enterprise, Google searches and your iPhone being tracked from tower to tower and you can't help but wonder how has this person disappeared for a year with no trace? Then there's all the stuff that law enforcement turned up when they arrested Epstein in 2019. Passports and cameras and paintings, just bananas, crazy stuff. And let's talk about our criminal justice system for a second, particularly how it relates to Epstein's first case against him. Prosecutors seemingly had dozens of women, all with the same story, testifying against him. And for those of you who have seen the Netflix documentary, a police department in Palm Beach that seemingly had a strong case against him, pretty hot on his tail. And he gets a year with work release and all his criminal co-conspirators face nothing? Let's not forget that the guy who gave that deal to him wound up in the Trump administration, our commander-in-chief thought he did such a good job for the people that he decided to make Alex Acosta the secretary of labor in the United States? Huh? I don't know. I don't know. But the article at this point flashes back to her dad's death. Robert Maxwell was some kind of media tycoon in the UK who, surprise, surprise, built his business on a house of cards, which of course collapsed and wrecked the family in many ways. When his bloated 300-plus-pound body turned up bobbing off the coast of the Canary Islands, several nautical miles away from his personal yacht. Let's get back to the article. There's a story that the Maxwell name was so detested in London that she had to walk around in a blonde wig so people wouldn't recognize her, an unnamed prominent New York socialite who knew Ghislaine reportedly told the New York Post. 
Hoping to launch a new life, she returned to New York City, where she had served as her father's ambassador to America in the days when he hoped his daughter might marry her friend, John F. Kennedy Jr., binding two great dynasties into one. Now, forced to vacate her spacious company-provided residence, she moved into a small apartment. When a friend came to visit, Ghislaine told her, They took everything, everything, even the cutlery. She was broke. The family was broke, the friend recalls. The girl who was brought up in luxury, and bang, everything was taken from them, and she came to the United States to begin again. Ghislaine Maxwell's reinvention didn't take long. In November 1992, one year after the death of her father, she was reportedly seen boarding the Concorde from London to New York. Unnoticed by almost everybody, traveling with her was a graying, plumpish, middle-aged American businessman who managed to avoid the photographers, reported the Mail on Sunday, one of her father's rival newspapers. It is to this man that the 30-year-old Ghislaine had turned to ease the heartache of her father's shame. His name? Jeffrey Epstein. Okay, now the article spends the next couple of pages outlining their fabulous lifestyle in the roaring 90s. G and Jeffrey are all in. Sure, it's a jet-setting romance and an allegedly twisted recruiting operation to get young girls, but she's also managing the entire day-to-day -day operations of this real estate operation, which includes the now-famous private island and another handful of mansions. And even in this article, which, again, is really good, that they never really get to the source of his or her wealth. Which is crazy, because both of them had federal cases brought against them. That's the weight of the Justice Department and the FBI. And basically every piece of investigative and law enforcement apparatus that this country has. I mean, think about that. Now, G's dad and her new boyfriend had something in common. A couple of things, actually. They were connected to very powerful people, and they were incredibly controlling. So let's get back to the article. Maxwell was expected to drop everything to serve Epstein. Ghislaine was one of the first people in New York to walk around with a cell phone, and she would very ostentatiously put it on a table at lunch, said Christopher Mason, the British TV writer and host. One day, the phone rang while Maxwell was hosting a friend for tea in her apartment. That was Jeffrey, she told her friend. He has the flu, and he wants me to go get the very best chicken soup in New York and take it to his house. Ghislaine, he has people on staff, the friend said. Can he send one of them? No, 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 Maxwell said. It has to be me. Every few days, it seemed Maxwell's phone would ring, and Epstein would inquire about the weather in Palm Beach, New Mexico, the Virgin Islands, or Paris. Ever-efficient Maxwell would spring into action, consulting the forecast, then alerting the pilots to ready the plane to fly whenever the skies were clearest. Then they were off, Maxwell organizing armies of staff in the various locations, coordinating everything, almost as demanding and as bombastic as her father. She would call people her minions, piglet, polyp, said one victim. So you felt like you were nothing. 
It continues a little further down. One Christmas, a very big billionaire threw a very big party in his very big apartment. Maxwell swept in and scanned the room, her eyes falling on two young sisters. Oh my God, look at those girls, Maxwell exclaimed, according to a friend. I didn't realize that they were so beautiful. Can you introduce me to them? Ghislaine, why would you want to meet them, the friend asked. Wouldn't you rather meet their parents? I'd like to meet them because I know Jeffrey would like to meet them, Maxwell explained. And that the friend recalls, is when I realized something was very strange. Well, I'm going to stop here very briefly just to say one thing. The end of this paragraph outlines one thing that I think is worth taking note of. People knew what was up. Okay, maybe not everyone but definitely not no one. There were telltale signs. I mean, this is way back in the 1990s. Let's pick back up. Maxwell consistently denied ever soliciting underage girls for Epstein, and she began trying to distance herself from him long before he went to jail. In the early 2000s, she spent time in California with a man many times richer than Epstein, Ted Waite. He lived in a seven-bedroom, 14-bath mansion in La Jolla, and they sailed aboard the 240-foot mega-yacht she helped him purchase, the Plan B. It was equipped with a helipad, jacuzzi, elevator, gym, and onboard submarine, which Maxwell was soon licensed to pilot. After she became his girlfriend, according to the New York Times, Mr. Waite shaved his head, started wearing tinted glasses, and became a virtual doppelganger for Jason Statham. Epstein, who some say felt threatened by the relationship, convinced Maxwell to return to work for him in 2004. In court papers, Maxwell's attorney stated, from approximately 1999 through at least 2006, Maxwell was employed by Epstein individually and by several of his affiliated businesses. She reportedly continued to accept rides on Epstein's plane until at least 2006, along with his money. In some of the litigation we brought against her in 2015, 2016, and 2017, Epstein was paying for her legal fees, says David Boise. The last known photo of them together is from a benefit for Wall Street rising in 2005. In the photo, Epstein has his arms around Maxwell's neck, pulling her close. A broad smile lights up her face. Away from Epstein, Maxwell was reborn, appearing on CNN, giving a speech at a TED event, and speaking nine times before the United Nations, having refocused her attention to something that she felt desperately needed saving, the crypt of her father, the sea. In September 2012, she founded the Terra Mar Project to build a global community to give a voice to the least explored, most ignored part of our planet, the high seas. Her founding citizens included Virgin Group owner Richard Branson. Okay, so now we're getting a little closer to the institutions. TED Talks, CNN, nine speeches at the United Nations. I mean, what the heck did Ghislaine do to earn these platforms? I don't know. I know a lot of smart people who do tons of good work that would never get access to all these institutions and people. 
at one point in the article, the author alludes to the idea that Epstein had the wealth, but Ghislaine knew how to deploy it. The point is that there's still so much mystery around all this money that they both had. But what's not mysterious is just how much access it afforded them both. Let's get back to the article. But process servers were now on her trail, dispatched by an attorney named Bradley Edwards, who was determined to depose her about her relationship with Epstein in what he would call a 12-year campaign to bring Epstein to justice. Edwards became convinced that Maxwell was the most important of all, the key to unlocking Epstein's secret world, the one woman who by all appearances Epstein treated as his equal. He hired investigators to track her and succeeded in serving her at the Clinton Global Initiative annual meeting in New York in September 2009. To say she was upset about being publicly served at this function is an understatement, Edwards later wrote. As the July 2010 date for Maxwell's deposition approached, her attorney called Edwards to explain that Maxwell's mother was very ill, so Maxwell was leaving the country with no plans to return to the United States. A few weeks later, Edwards opened People magazine to find a photo of Bill Clinton walking his daughter Chelsea down the aisle at her July 31st wedding in Rhinebeck, New York. Holy shit, Edwards would later write. Who was front and center on the aisle? Ghislaine Maxwell. All aboard! Next stop, Crazy Town! Okay. So they jump around in time a little bit here, but Chelsea got married in the summer of 2010. So we're a couple of years into the first Obama administration. We're a couple of years past Jeffrey Epstein's first conviction. And we're also a couple of years down the road from our last financial meltdown that we had. And our heroine is marrying a Goldman Sachs banker. You know that thing on TV where they, the guy walks up and hands you the envelope and goes, you've been served? They serve her those papers for her deposition to appear in court at the Clinton Global Initiative. Do we see what's going on here? Are we sensing a pattern? G is ducking subpoenas and cutting it up at Chelsea Clinton's wedding. Her dad, the former president, is the guy who repealed Glass-Steagall, which let investment banks completely off the chain. What is going on here? I mean, there is a special place in hell for those Goldman guys. They were not only selling those dog shit derivative mortgage bundles that caused our last financial collapse, but they were betting against them in their personal portfolio accounts and to their private wealth customers. And not a single one of those executives went to jail. None of them. They managed to completely privatize profits while spreading liability over the entire American taxpayer. And something like four of the last six secretaries of the Treasury were former Goldman CEOs. And for those of you saying, oh, that's a free market, that's, that's, that's a failure of capitalism. That is not free market capitalism failing. 
That's crony capitalism succeeding and the failure of government. Rec- no, no, no. With the actual blessing of our elected officials. And hey, let's party, everyone. Chelsea's getting married. A real woman of the people. Bonkers. Let's get back to the article. It would be six years before attorneys for a different accuser would get the chance to depose Maxwell at last. Virginia Roberts was a 17-year-old changing room attendant at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago Club when, she said, Maxwell recruited her as a traveling masseuse for Epstein. She had first told her story to the FBI and Daily Mail in 2011. In December 2014, using her married name of Virginia Roberts Jeffrey, she filed a motion in the Southern District Court of Florida describing Maxwell as Epstein's primary co-conspirator and participant in his sexual abuse and sex trafficking scheme. Maxwell reacted with fury, issuing an urgent statement to the media dismissing Jeffrey's claim as defamatory and obvious lies. Jeffrey, in turn, sued Maxwell for defamation in federal court in New York, a lawsuit, quote, widely viewed as a vessel for Epstein's victims to expose the scope of Epstein's crime, the Miami Herald would later report. All right. I mean, the article goes on to get incredibly detailed and very salacious, so much so that I don't even feel comfortable reading it. I mean, it's very, very graphic about what these girls were accusing her of and what Jeffrey Epstein was up to. But it spends another page or two just outlining, talking about the incredibly extravagant lifestyle she was living while essentially ducking authorities and, 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 and running away from these lawsuits by Epstein's victims. And can we come back to one final institution, the fourth estate, journalism? If only someone in, in the institution of journalism could have had an inkling of this story, had some, had some information about these goings-on, maybe we could have got to justice sooner. I've had the story for three years. I've had this interview with Virginia Roberts. We would not put it on the air. Um, First of all, I was told, who's Jeffrey Epstein? No one knows who that is. This is a stupid story. Um, Then the palace found out that we had her whole allegations about Prince Andrew and threatened us a million different ways. Um, We were so afraid we wouldn't be able to interview Kate and Will that that also quashed the story. And then, um, and then Alan Dershowitz was also implicated in because of the planes. She told me everything. She had pictures. She had everything. She was in hiding for 12 years. We convinced her to come out. We convinced her to talk to us. Um, it was unbelievable what we had. Clinton. We had everything. That was ABC News reporter Amy Robach caught on a hot mic explaining how and why her bosses shut down the Epstein story for years. For those of you unfamiliar, it was uncovered by James O'Keefe and his project Veritas. Whether you like his politics or his methods, I think it's safe to say it's pretty important journalism and really speaks to the rot that has decimated broadcast journalism. The idea that you'd squash a story on the biggest pedophile in U.S. history because you might lose access to a third-tier British royal is embarrassing. I mean, shameful, really. Anyway, another institution exposed in this Epstein mess, broadcast journalism. As for magazine journalism, 
the Vanity Fair article goes on, as stated before, to outline the sordid, sordid details of G's actual role in the abuse of these girls or women and takes readers on the hunt to find her after Jeffrey Epstein's second arrest and his mysterious death. But here I'll pick the article back up to expose one final institution. On August 27th, Annie Farmer appeared alongside 15 other accusers at a federal court hearing in New York. Epstein had died two weeks earlier, and an empty chair sat ominously at the defendant's table as his accusers poured out their emotions, detailed their abuse, and demanded justice. Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell, not only assaulted Maria, but as we've heard from so many of the brave women here today, they stole her dreams and her livelihood, Farmer told the crowded courtroom. The fact that I will never have a chance to face my predator in court eats away at my soul, Jennifer Arrows said at the hearing. She accused Epstein of raping her when she was a 14-year-old high school student. They let this man kill himself and kill the chance for justice for so many others in the process, taking away our ability to speak. Days after Epstein's death, she sued Maxwell, Epstein's estate, and others, claiming that, quote, Defendant Maxwell participated with and assisted Epstein in maintaining and protecting his sex trafficking ring, ensuring that approximately three girls a day were made available to him for his sexual pleasure. <sighs> Yikes. I mean, what do you say here? If these allegations are true, it, it, it's just... It's horrific. And the institution I want to get to, we've, we, and we've already outlined the criminal justice system as an institution. But hey, America's still number one in one place. The prison industrial complex. The incarceration state. Our correction facilities and prisons. We have by far more people and more prisons per capita than any Western nation in the world. And what did we need them to do in this case? Put aside all the conspiracy theories, all the hashtag Epstein didn't kill himself. All we needed this system to do was keep Jeffrey Epstein alive so that maybe, possibly, we could get to the bottom of these crimes. Nope. Couldn't do it. Sleeping guards. Malfunctioning cameras. And somehow, Jeffrey Epstein was able to kill himself, making sure that we'll never really know. Would anybody be surprised if Ghislaine Maxwell never made it into a courtroom? I'm going to read the last page of the article to the end and give some final thoughts. And now, following her arrest, she faces criminal charges. According to the detention memo filed by the Southern District of New York on July 2nd, Maxwell began, quote, hiding out in locations in New England in July 2019 and making 
quote, intentional efforts to avoid detection, including moving locations at least twice, switching her primary phone, which she registered under the name GMAX, and email address, and ordering packages for delivery with a different person listed on the shipping label. If convicted, Maxwell faces up to 35 years in prison, and prosecutors arguing to deny her bail invoked her history of globetrotting and apparent access to secret stashes of money. In the last three years, she took at least 15 international flights to the United Kingdom, Japan, and Qatar, according to the memo. She also had 15 different bank accounts from 2016 to the present. And during that same period, the total balances of those accounts have, have ranged from a total of hundreds of thousands of dollars to more than 20 million. She allegedly made transfers of, quote, hundreds of thousands of dollars at a time. They finally found her in a four-bedroom, 4,300-square-foot home on a 156-acre wooded lot that she, quote, acquired through an all-cash purchase in December 2019 through a carefully anonymized LLC in Branford, New Hampshire, an area to which she has no other connections. The home is reportedly called Tucked Away, and an online listing describes it as, quote, an amazing retreat for the nature lover who also wants total privacy. The sale price... $1,070,000. Before Maxwell was arrested, I asked the friend who claimed to know her situation a question. How does she see her future? When Maxwell was asked this question by Hello Magazine in 1997, she was 35 years old and starting over again in New York. I'm optimistic about my future, she said, and believe things will continue to improve for me as time passes. Now that time is gone, along with Jeffrey Epstein, quote, I don't think she sees there's a future, came the reply. <sighs> That's how the piece ends. How this Ghislaine Epstein story ends is another question altogether. Before I wrap up the episode, I want to try and work my way through a couple more things. First, the obvious. If you dig deep enough into anyone's sexuality or sexual history, you're going to find something that aches you out, that's distasteful to you as an individual. And I don't expect moral perfection from our leaders. I think if you go down that road, you wind up with the creeps who run Gilead in The Handmaid's Tale. Then there's also the fact that in most cases, I won't condemn people through association. Like, just because there's a picture of Elon Musk out there from a cocktail party with G from 17 years ago, doesn't mean he's a predator as well. But if the allegations against Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell are true... They'll go down in history of two of the most evil sexual predators ever. And the failure to stop them has shown how institutions ranging from criminal justice, law enforcement, and politics, all the way to journalism and our financial systems, not only failed, but are being run, or at the very least being manipulated, by a very specific group of people. And they're not very nice people. And whether it's the evil orange man Trump in the White House today, or the Clintons, or the international players who held sway in the United Nations that were sipping cocktails with Jeffrey and G 
years ago. It really sheds a nasty spotlight on these realities. And on top of that, you just have to wonder, how can we expect these institutions to have the best interest of people as their main goal when we find nefarious characters like these at the very top of these organizations? How can we pretend here in America that this is a government of, for, and by the people? I mean, we, we can't really be surprised, can we? I mean, think of where we are. This is our moment. This is when leadership and vision and the real intent and interpretation of the founding principles of this democratic experiment actually mean something. We're six months into a pandemic and the national response here in the U.S. can only be described as kind of shameful. There has to be a reclaiming of these institutions that really serves the people. Laws have to be just. Justice has to be blind. And rights have to be respected and protected. And our institutions have to serve ordinary people. And I'm just not sure that's the direction this nation is headed right now. But... I know that we can get there. In fact, I've even got a few ideas on how. But for those, you're going to have to wait a few more episodes and keep tuning in until I spill the beans. All right, that's the show for today, guys. Make sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at LiveLearnFreddy. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure you share the podcast, tell a friend, and most of all, live, learn, repeat. Repeat.